0: Welcome to the podcast of Faith Lutheran Church in Oregon, Wisconsin. This is Pastor Hendricks. What you're about to hear is a lecture that was given as part of a conference here at Faith in October of 2022 called Our Great Heritage, sponsored by Return to Wittenberg. The conference was celebrating Luther's translation of the New Testament into German uh, in 1522. Uh, And so the conference focused on our heritage, our great heritage, Uh, Since that time so lectures were given on our heritage of Christian Liberty by dr. Adam Kuntz Our heritage of worship by Cantor Daniel Baker Glorious now we press toward glory uh, really a heritage of our glory uh, and our bodies uh, by the Reverend Dagan Siepert and Finally another presentation by dr. Adam Kuntz on our heritage of God's gifts. These are all part of a free conference A free conference in the sense that it's an open theological dialogue, uh, free, that that one is able to attend and present without officially declaring, uh, representing or declaring fellowship with others in attendance or any synodical group, uh, including even uh, our own church. Uh, But we are happy to host these uh, presenters, uh, and uh, it was edifying and educational to all those who were in attendance, and I hope the same is true for you. Uh, Please enjoy uh, the lecture. Good morning, everyone. At
1: this point, we'll get started with our presentations. It's my pleasure to uh, welcome Dr. Adam Kuntz to our conference this year. Um, Dr. Kuntz is a pastor in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, Um, currently has a call at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado, took that call earlier this summer. Prior to that, he was a professor um, at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, and served in Pennsylvania before that as a parish pastor. Pastor Kuntz is happily married with seven children, and uh, some of you may know him from Brief History of Power, Word Fitly Spoken, also been in Issues Etc. a few times. Uh, Just more than pleased that he could be here uh, this weekend uh, to present on our Heritage of Christian Liberty and um, heritage of children, you know, God's gifts while we're here on earth. So at this time, please give a hearty welcome to uh, Pastor Koontz. Let's put it down here. Thank you. Can you guys hear me okay? All right, it's good to be here. Thank you for having
2: me. David. gave an excellent introduction because he did not tell you any year that I graduated from elementary school or (laughs) (laughs) what I wrote, my dissertation on, or anything like that. I'm happy to talk about that, but I'm tired of hearing about it, so it's really nice. He just gave you the basics. I want to talk this morning about Christian liberty, and we're going to define that, but we want to define it in terms of heritage. The phrase itself, Christian liberty, is generally brought up in the context of the worship wars, whether those are currently ongoing in one's congregation or synod or not. We want to talk about heritage. We don't want to talk about things that people, when they do discuss them, they say, well, it's within my
3: Christian liberty
2: to do X or Y or Z, especially with music and liturgy. They've already made their minds up, and then Christian liberty can come in as sort of a justification for what you're doing. Let's start back at the beginning, and maybe that will bring greater clarity both to the term Christian liberty, but also to this notion of heritage. What is it that we do inherit? What has been passed down from the Reformation? And we're going to talk this morning about a threefold cord that's an image, of course, taken from... Proverbs, but we're going to use it to discuss our Reformation heritage, and I'm going to start out by suggesting that Christians generally, Lutherans specifically, only know, or are interested in, or are made aware of, really only one of those courts. Part of that has to do with how we commemorate the Reformation, or how we think about it, but we generally do it in October, especially the final Sunday in October, and that on Reformation Sunday, what we're commemorating, I suppose, is Luther's action as a professor of the Bible of putting up a series of theses for debate on the question of purgatory and indulgences. It's the reason that I think, somewhat strangely, Lutherans generally have a better idea of what indulgences are than modern Roman Catholics, to whom those things are still available, but generally a Lutheran will be able to tell you what they are for, because he has sat through one or more Reformation Sunday sermons in which the concept has, for whatever reason, been explained at some length. I don't know that it's entirely pertinent, but I do know that we know about it. That is a single day, It's also an early day in Luther's career. If you read the 95 Theses, you will come to see that at the time, not only does he still believe in the concept of purgatory, he just wants the way that it operates to work differently than the church seems to be doing, but he also believes in the power and validity of the Pope's job to oversee doctrine throughout Christendom. So it's pretty early. He hasn't yet come fully, in the opinion of many people who study these things, to a full-fledged Lutheran that is a biblical, that's all we mean by Lutheran, we just mean, that we're going to talk about this morning, biblical. He hasn't come to a biblical articulation of the doctrine of justification. That's, of course, what we are celebrating, is that we have that articulation, that biblical, that specifically Pauline, Doctrine of Justification. That's one strand in the threefold cord. The thing that's going to keep him developing, changing, growing in the word of God after October 31st, 1517, are the other two strands. And those are the ones that I think are most generally neglected, partly because they are the ones that make you most uncomfortable the first strand the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone is both easily articulated and easily remembered and having articulated it i don't need to follow on necessarily with other things that scripturally and historically in the church follow with it luther did he was forced by the press of not just that strand, but the other two, into a life he had not imagined. So our heritage is in this way always forward-looking because the future is always the place where God's providence, his care for mankind, his love for his people will be displayed. Luther doesn't know, like he's hammering the theses on the door, for debate, academic debate, Debate in Latin between people who can remain safely irrelevant from everyday life and the life of the church. He doesn't know that he's going to have to end up translating the Bible in a way that can be understood by God's people. He doesn't know he's going to be excommunicated. He doesn't know this will not remain safely academic. All of these things are involved in the other two strands. And they are these, It will go on about greater length for the one than the other. So we've got the doctrine of justification, but here are the other two strands. The sufficiency of Scripture, and the Church's subjection to Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture, and the Church's subjection to Scripture. We're going to talk a lot this morning about sufficiency, and we'll talk about the Church's subjection, or obedience to Scripture, Psalm 119 towards the end. Because Christian liberty is, first of all, specifically Christian. Therefore, it is not just a desire to tell other people no, which resides in some people more strongly than others, and simply a function of personality. Lutheranism, Protestant Christianity, however you want to phrase this, the religion of the Bible, is not simply a function of certain people's personality or of Martin Luther's personality, and he himself was clear that this was not the case. When he's trying to describe this change of mind that goes on in order for him to come to the doctrine of justification that he does come, he describes a certain wrestling with a very specific text. So this is where we will begin to discuss the sufficiency of Scripture, And that is Romans 1.17. Luther is wrestling with this text, having access to the Bible by virtue of his vocation, also by virtue of his education, so he both (coughs) has to teach the Bible and to read Latin. And as he wanders around in Paul, he begins to wonder, what does this mean? What is this gospel that is being revealed from faith to faith? What is this? is a kind of extra level of demand beyond the level of demand obviously made by the Bible on man and articulated well in the medieval church. And notice I haven't used the phrase Roman Catholicism because Luther doesn't think of himself as belonging in American terms to a different denomination and that he starts a new denomination. It's important to say He's in the church, and then the church is reformed. Denominational labels are helpful, really, for advertising purposes, but when we put evangelical Lutheranity outside, what we're really just saying is church, church of the Bible, historic Christian church. Luther doesn't make up something new. He is a reformer, by God's grace, of what always is and must endure. So as he's pouring over the scriptures, he's wondering what they mean. How are they going to articulate not just the doctrine of justification, but also display to man what man should do and should follow and practice, and what he experiences is what we, most of us, pretty much maybe all of us, certainly in the past two years, have encountered in one way or another, which is severe and basic conflict in the church over what is mandated by God and what is mandated by man, using the verb mandate as well as the noun mandate intentionally. Because you will notice, when man mandates things, it can and does often conflict with what God mandates. So we have thought, many of us, certainly in the past two years, about this question of liberty, as well as specifically religious liberty, or in a more Lutheran phrasing of it, Christian liberty, that's the title of a tract Luther writes in 1520. What is it? And whose mandates are we supposed to follow? This is how you can see that we have a threefold strand here, threefold cord. These things are intertwined. The doctrine of justification, the sufficiency of Scripture, and the church's subjection to Scripture. Let's talk about that word, sufficiency, so that we understand where it is that we're going, or why it is that many of us responded to various mandates the way that we did or felt a certain way about it if it was not in our power to respond the way that we felt we should because we weren't in a position to make decisions. Why was that conflict perceived, though? What was the problem? And we, like Luther, did not perhaps foresee all that would be involved in thinking about who mandates what. We didn't know, how could we? Because when we see the scriptures, we see on display a confluence of opposition to this threefold cord, this threefold heritage, that continually reappears in scripture as well as in church history. In the scriptures, that confluence of this interest in justification. Also, disinterest in God's mandates. Also, disinterest in subjection to scripture. You find that confluence most clearly in the scriptures displayed in the Pharisees. And I want to talk about them because I think they get a bad name. Not that it's bad that they have a bad name, but they get a bad name for the wrong reasons. And associated with that wrong reason is a misuse of this term, both inside our church and throughout Christianity, a misuse of the term legalism. The Pharisees are indeed legalists. That doesn't mean, however, simply that they are telling people what is right or wrong on the basis of God's word. That's, in fact, the very thing they don't. Pharisees instruct people as to what is right or wrong on the basis of their own thinking, own invention, own interests, what the Gospels generally call their traditions, their things handed down, accompanied by the force of time and authority. So if someone stands up in the pulpit in his vestments and says something, and then he says that someone told him that, or he says that. Many people have stood up in similar pulpits, in similar vestments, and said similar things. That doesn't necessarily, for a Christian, mean anything. But the Pharisees speak and act in this way. They are unusually, for the Gospels, actually identified by their clothing and their behavior. They love to be seen. And are seen in robes that are long, meaning they don't have to work for a living so they can wear long stuff. It's kind of impractical, unlike the poor people from whom they steal who work for a little bit. And then the Pharisees take the whole thing. Jesus says they devour even widows houses. So a way to recognize people and a way to actually use scripture, and this will play into when we discuss Luther's use of scripture, as far as the church is being subject to the Word of God, is to look at what they do, especially in a kind of crisis in the church, whether the crisis of Jesus teaching in Israel and some people agreeing and some people disagreeing, or the crisis of Luther beginning to teach the Word of God openly and freely, maybe by 1520 or 1522 when he begins to translate The New Testament, publishing it in September 1522, the New Testament in German, able to articulate clearly what the scriptures are teaching. Or when we ourselves have had, do have, controversies over are our churches supposed to be open? Are they supposed to serve the sacrament according to the institution of Christ? What are they supposed to do? When those things are happening, notice that you don't really have time because probably nobody has been able to articulate it so far, you don't have time to say, okay, let me just open up my dogmatics textbook or let me open up a resource from 50 years ago and figure out what is going on. Because this problem in this specific way didn't happen. So nobody was able to talk about it. Luther doesn't have a playbook that he opens up and says, here's how to be a reformer of the church. Let me just look at page 17. What he does know is that he might die. Because John Huss was burnt roughly 100 years earlier. That's the only playbook he has. What you do have access to at the time is the observation of behavior. You can see in real time the nature of legalism and the nature of hypocrisy. To speak of hypocrisy first, because it's, I think, most misunderstood, hypocrisy is not in the Bible the gap that every human being has, also that the saints have in the Church of God between what they want to be and what they are. That is not hypocrisy. There is, in fact, in the Church of God, an openness about that gap every human being has even if he's not holding himself to divine standards as we are in the church, the gap that every human being has between what he is in his life and what he desires to be, even at times what he wants openly to be. A hypocrite is someone who is pretending to be somebody he's not. So if you stand in the church and you say, I am a poor miserable sinner, that doesn't make you a hypocrite. You are being open about who you are. One reason that we retain the ancient forms of the church's worship is because you will notice they contain a broader set of statements about who man is than most non-historic forms are going to do. Because over thousands of years, and certainly in the Psalms, we are able to encompass and then to express Everything from despair to great joy to sadness, to how you see when you see your how you feel when you see your grandkids, may you see your children's children, is the blessing that is pronounced. So you have just a much wider array of emotions and experiences encompassed in the scriptures' expression of spiritual life and then the liturgy's expression of spiritual life than you do otherwise, where modern people. Generally, modern people just from industrialized countries are producing lyrics that you then sing or listen to sung by the band or whatever the case may be. It's not that that's always like evil, strictly speaking, it's that it's generally extremely limited compared to the scriptures and compared to the historic liturgy. That's the issue. It doesn't make you a hypocrite, if there's a gap. A hypocrite is specifically someone who is pretending. Think about how the Pharisees are pretending. What are they pretending? They'll pretend to be people teaching the word of God, but by their actions, they obviously deny those things because they have none of the pity on, for example, the poor that the word of God has all over the place, saying, even if you forget the harvest part of your field, it's harvest time now, right? If you forget the hardest part of your field, just leave it to so the poor and come and take it. Don't go back in the field now that you've thought it. They have no care for the poor. It's exemplified in their behavior. They also practically have no care for the word of God. And this is Jesus' chief charge against them. Quoting the prophets who saw similar things and foresaw such things, Quoting the prophets when the prophets say that they will teach the traditions of men as commandments or doctrines of God. So that is their hypocrisy, their pretense, their chief evil, is this sin against the second commandment where they exchange true doctrine and they put in its place false doctrine. What is the nature of false doctrine? Its nature is that it is invented by men and generally taught with greater authority and force than the doctrine of God. Let's call that the accursed exchange. Luther speaks in speaking about the work of Christ, a blessed exchange. Our sin His righteousness. He takes the sin, we get the righteousness. Our death, his life, he takes our death, we receive his life in exchange. All of this beautifully seen in baptism. But so let's call this exchange in which hypocrites in the church engage an accursed exchange. Because what it's going to do is promulgate in the church, generally with incredible force and obviousness not explaining itself. I mean, there really is no, you will notice, that Pharisees have, for Jesus, sort of debate questions, trick questions, as do the Sadducees and the lawyers at front.
4: So they have a question about
2: marriage. you think marriage is so great, Jesus? What about this lady and seven guys die on her? Whose wife is she going to be in heaven? I mean, it's just absurd, insane types of things that they come up with to debate with Jesus or they want to know which commandment is greatest in the law, or some people sincerely have questions. Plenty of questions Jesus has to ask, plenty of points are debate. You will notice that the Pharisees do not behave in the same way. They are incapable of open discussion. So we're going to leave maybe 10 or 15 minutes at the end, and maybe some of you want to talk about what I'm saying up to that point. And maybe some of you want to be like, what's wrong with the Missouri Senate?" or something, right? And that's fine. I'm happy to talk about what's wrong with the Missouri Senate. That's okay. Um, but, you know, it's not that I have every answer, but I do think it is incumbent if you teach the Word of God to remain open to questions. You will know that it is not the case with the Pharisees. They are not open. They can't and they don't and they're not interested in discussing So the thing to watch for when you have these kinds of controversies and the way to diagnose actual hypocrisy is to look for a combination of pretense with an inability to openly discuss the Bible. Inability, disinterest, whatever you want to call it. It's not going to be there. And you're going to get similar processes during the Reformation where Luther will be, even if it appears to be some kind of debate, generally what he, what's really happening is he's getting called on the carpet. There is no open debate, even if things, Luther's not unique. Other people are thinking many of these things. That's why there are other reformers and other forms of reformation. So there are people interested in these questions. But generally, you will. You will really just need to look at behavior because they will not usually be open statements. So I'll give you an example here. I don't know that any Lutheran pastor or synod or whatever you know, organization you're talking about came out and said in 2020, I believe that physical sickness is more important than the body and blood of Christ. Of course they're not going to say that. Of course, they can't say that. But we didn't really have open debates about these things. And the reason is because I think we're kind of embarrassed by these things. So when we don't have open, open discussion, not even a debate, you don't have to set it up in an oppositional way, but just discussion, you can kind of tell that we have a big problem. That's hypocrisy. pretense. I'm pretending to be sworn, let's say, by my ordination vows to administer the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ to these people to whom I call, but by my actions, I deny what I have sworn to do, and so on. Legalism. What does that mean, and how is it expressed? We're using the Pharisees just because it's clearest in the Scriptures, and will, you know, papacy is only interesting to some people, so we're using what's available to us in the Bible instead of confusing you with Celestines and Sixtuses and other kind of strange characters, right? Legalism is often used as kind of a cudgel, uh, I think, often by Protestant Christians. It's kind of a, a word that shuts down discussion. If I suggest something about the nature of life, or I say that this is how you should behave, or this is what you should do with your life. You could be called, you're in danger of being called a legalist because you are discussing what people should actually do. That's not the problem. Jesus has plenty of discussion of what people should do with their lives, and he certainly wasn't twisting God's word. So you should behave in this way, or you should be forgiving, or this is how you should. Therefore, your mother and your father, before you worry about putting money in the plate make your sure mom and dad are taken care of, whatever the case may be, he discusses human life and behavior, what our confessions will call the new obedience right? of the child of God to the Father's word. That's not legalism. Legalism, paradoxically, really is not an adherence to God's law. If you really love God's law, you would be able to use it in the right way. It would show you your sin, and it would guide your behavior. That's not legalism. Legalism, paradoxically, is not really about God's law. It's about man's opinions concerning God's law. And it moves generally in two very different directions at the same time. You can see it in the Pharisees. You can see them, for instance, tightening up things that God's law does not specify. So, tithe, there are various tithes in the Old Testament, adding up to quite a bit more than 10% of your overall income. There are various tithes for various occasions, and those tithes, the Pharisees then tighten up and apply to things that the Old Testament doesn't specifically discuss on very small herbs. So you have to take your Little seasonings things with the red caps and take out a tenth of each of them um, out of the pantry. And then that little tithe would, I don't know, you could sell that tiny amount of cumin or dill or mustard seed, sell it for the good of the church. That's the tithe that they kind of invent. So it's tighter, it's more specific, it's more intense than God's own law expressed in the Old Testament. At the same time, they loosen up things that shouldn't be loosened. So they loosen the fourth commandment honor your father and your mother, that it may go well with you and that your days may be long in the earth. Paul says the first commandment with a promise. We're going to talk more about that in the afternoon. They loosen that up and they say, well, if you already gave too much of your income to the temple, then you don't need to worry about mom and dad because whatever, somebody will worry about them or, I don't know, social security will take care of it. I don't really know, right? But don't worry about it. It's just God's commandment. So what happens at the same time is that what gets called legalism, being strict, in this case, too strict, goes along with what gets called antinomianism, that is being against God's law, They go together. They're like two sides of the same coin. So on one side is Jefferson. I flip the coin over and there's the Jefferson Memorial. Same thing with legalism and antinomianism. And I don't know enough about American coinage. Is that even true? Is FDR on the other side? Monticello's on the other side? I've even been to Monticello and I forgot that. Okay, well... Don't listen to anything else I'm saying. Okay. <laughs>
4: okay.
2: That's good. I saw the doubt, and then I was like, maybe I'm wrong.
4: So, okay.
2: That legalism and antinomianism always go together. You're gonna, and you can see this not only in the gospels. You can also see it if you talk to people in, in growing up in some situation in which it was truly legalistic, that is, things were tight in a way that God's word did not make them tight, they will often respond by being way too loose because they're rebelling against the tightness or people who grew up with no rules will make up plenty of their own that the Bible cannot really sustain. These things go together. The way that this gets expressed in the case of the Pharisees is a general just opposition to the actual use of the Bible or a constant reference to their own traditions. The way that you observe this in the Reformation is that you get a constant reference to dictates and papal mandates and what are called papal bulls—that that is, letters sent out or some kind of general force in the church. You will find this also in discussions between people or within congregations or synods, generally of what was said or done by which authority thinkers. Constant recourse to authority thinkers. I'm doing what I was taught to do at seminary. I'm doing what synod said was okay. I'm doing whatever. or in a congregation, this is what we've always done. Or whatever the case may be. It's a constant recourse to really merely human authority. And the problem there is that that's not really meant to sustain God's people. It's why Jesus doesn't have recourse to merely human authority. He'll even bring up, if he needs to, various obscure Bible stories, like how David had his men sustained when they were marching by plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath, with the blessing of the B.S.R., he will have recourse to very obscure Bible passages as examples for his behavior and the behavior of his disciples. When they, for instance, have a debate about is it okay to eat with unwashed hands? He will discuss instead, just apart from germ theory, if you will, he will discuss instead of the tradition of the elders whether the scriptures actually require you to do And if they don't, then you are free. What's involved here is a, a practical use of the word of God that is very often seldom found. This is an insight that I did not derive from a Missouri Synod theologian, but from a set of Wisconsin Synod theologians, the Wallachosis theologians, J.T. Taylor, John Schaller, and August Pieper, who I think have been neglected in the force of what it is that they actually perceive.
5: A lot of what they
2: did ended up being used in later years as simply kind of an academic method. That is, when you're doing theology, You want to know Hebrew and Greek really, really well, so that when you discuss things, you have a very good sense of what this word means and what that phrase means. And and that is true. They did promote that. That is a historic legacy of the Lutheran Church, is the insistence that the clergy actually know how to use the Bible directly, rather than trusting someone else's opinion, which is expressed in a translation. But that's not all they said. They said also that if the church does not actually use the word of God, then it will fall into a constant obsession with its own traditions and pronouncements that will then replicate, even in a Lutheran church, the dynamics of the church before the Reformation. So we will have returned to a form of slavery, except it will look Lutheran in its trappings rather than the people. Because the slavery does not consist in some sort of particular liturgical usage or something like that. So if someone says that something is too Catholic, the question is, oh, so you mean it's disconnected from the word of God? That would be the definition for Luther. And they didn't use the word Catholic for their opponents. They constantly said papal, and we'll say why in a little bit. They said papal because they identified it as disconnected from the doctrines of God and promoting instead the traditions of the men. That was their problem with the church that needed to be reformed. If we need to be reformed, and I think we always do, because we're sinners, We can observe in the history, for instance, even of the southern kingdom of the Old Testament, a constant need to rediscover the law and also to practice the law. Our neglect can at times be shocking when you realize, for instance, that they seem not to have done Passover, maybe, I don't know, ever, hundreds of years. It's not really clear at the time when Hilkiah discovers the law, and then Josiah begins to put it into practice, they seem to have neglected the whole thing for a very, very long time. So the idea that our heritage is just sort of looking back and congratulating ourselves is
0: unbiblical.
2: If we are still on this earth, then we are probably in need of some kind of reformation. This begins, or becomes apparent, Especially when behavior conflicts severely with what is obvious for the word of God. So if our church can sing, no poison can be in the cup which my physician sendeth, but our church is also simultaneously, our congregations are also simultaneously afraid of the Lord's Supper, then obviously we have a problem. And that's how we know We see what we are actually doing as we do when we repent individually. We have to look with honesty at what we are actually doing and not at what it is that we say that we do or we say that we are. Because very infrequently, as a sinner or any group of sinners at any level, an entire church, whatever, very rarely is a sinner going to, on his own initiative, be able to look at himself. Honestly, and certainly he can never do so thoroughly without the Bible. This word sufficiency gets used, therefore, for this doctrine, this second chord. I think it's the thickest chord. It gets used for this because it means that we actually have enough in the Bible to change. We have enough. It is sufficient. We don't have to look to other resources. They can be helpful. It can be extremely helpful, for example, to look back at the Reformation and see, as we study a biography of Luther or a history of the Reformation, to see what happened. But we actually have enough in the Bible, not only for our own faith and our own lives, but also collectively for our faith. That assertion will always seem naive. It will always seem naive because it doesn't have to do and doesn't take account of and doesn't care about the various processes,
5: positions, and institutions
2: that churches develop over time. The Bible doesn't care specifically that this congregation has always done this in that way. The Bible doesn't care that you are accustomed to sinning in that specific way, and it seems okay to you, and people around you do it, so it's probably fine. The Bible doesn't care that synod or whatever agreed that this was right or wrong in this or that year via this or that revolution. It doesn't really matter. When Scripture talks about that dynamic, it will generally talk about time dynamic. And that's why the Reformation adopts as sort of a slogan or almost a logo in modern parlance this VVMA thing. The word of God endures in eternity in Latin. That's why it adopts it because it identifies right now I'm in some kind of severe conflict. Often when we call the story of the Reformation we're talking For explaining, I think, this limits us in some ways, just about Luther's life and Luther's conflict and his own sense of sin and his own relief from that sense of sin and discovering that the gospel is about what God does for man, not about what man does for God. But there are other conflicts in which we engage and which we do not look for, but which find us in our families, in our work lives, in our congregations, in our synods, And when they find us, it's almost impossible at the time to know exactly what you're supposed to do. One consolation that you take is that the assertions of men fall to the ground, and the word of God endures forever. So if you are aligned with the word of God, then you have chosen the victor. You are with the victor. You are among the victors. in fact, Paul says, you are more than conquerors through him who loves you. As time goes on, man's plans and his traditions fall to the side. That's the thing that is just so horrible about the traditions of men. At the time, it gets promulgated as you must do this. You have to. You can't work here if you don't get vaccinated. You can't come to church unless you're wearing certain medical equipment and you have to do communion in this way. Don't you care about people? You're sitting against the fifth commandment. You're murdering people if you don't do communion in this way that no one thought of before March 2020. At the time, it sounds you must absolutely do this. Where are you getting that from the Bible? I'm not talking to you about that. Okay? At the time. Now, where is all of it? I'm flying on planes, there's no mass, I'm taking communion, there's no, like, fables here, so I don't touch the pastor's hands. Um, none of that is happening. None of it. It's all gone. Certain traditions of men go away fast. One way to observe the are traditions of men is how fast they go away. And now that it's gone... What are you supposed to do with it? When you read Luther, you will often find him bringing up the Pope and the monks. And sometimes when you read this, you're like, I'm just not feeling you right now. Like, I'm not, this is not interesting. It's like if the pastor, sometimes pastors do this with, like, pop culture references and it's some, some other pop culture and I'm just, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't care. I'm not, I'm going to come back into this sermon later on. Um, Thanks, Pastor. You keep going, you know. And so sometimes you'll hear Luther and you're like, why are you so angry about this? What are you so upset about? You know. But what's happening here is that Luther is trying to profit from his own experience. He's thinking back to when his whole life was centered on kind of the equivalent of wearing medical equipment in public, and so on, and so on, and so on. He's thinking back to, I had to do this, and they were like, you have to do this, so you're going to go to hell. Or you have to do this, or so you're not a good Christian. Or you're a better Christian if you don't have a wife and children, or whatever. So he's thinking back, and it doesn't make entire sense to us, because we didn't grow up with, most of us. Those specific traditions of men. Those weren't oppressing us, those weren't haunting us, so when we go through them, we think to ourselves, okay, this is interesting, or maybe you just really hate the Pope or whatever, and that's fine, it's you're tracking, but sometimes, I mean like with Benedict, I was like, you no, I
6: really like this guy, he seems
2: reasonable. I think you read books sometimes. <laughs> now with Francis, I'm like, yeah, the Pope. I, read. you know, but that's just a
4: personal preference. That's not,
2: doctrine. I'm not feeling it deeply. I don't wake up in the morning and think, can't stand the Pope. Still, you know. So, but that, just, that the, the reason for that, is the reason that it's important, not just to read sermons of Luther, but also for your pastor to preach well and for you to listen well. Is because he needs to be talking about, when he's talking about this cursive exchange, traditions of men that actually exist among us. If he's doing that, then it's landing. If he's doing that, then it's making sense. If he's doing that, then I learn to tell the difference. So, what are the stakes of telling the difference? I mean, who cares? Why does it matter? Because some traditions of men could be fine. I'm not oppressed by the fact, some pastors are. By the fact that I have to shake everybody's hand. Some pastors would rather die than do that, but they kind of force themselves to do that. I kind of like it, okay? And I like to hear the, uh, you know, responses of the people of God, such as your microphone was not loud enough today, or <laughs> these kinds of things. But that's a tradition of men. It could go away. Nobody would be oppressed by it. Maybe it has gone away for you. I don't really know. The problem with traditions of men is not that they exist, they always exist. Um, you eat Thanksgiving dinner at a certain time, or you have certain foods, or whatever, that mandate didn't fall from heaven. The problem with traditions of men is that they like, especially in times of conflict, and also in the context of the Christians, to take the place of the word of God. They're greedy, the traditions of men are. They're very, very... So, they like to usurp what belongs to the Word of God. And so, people will have really detailed accounts of the traditions of men in their minds. It has a particular purchase on people's minds, the traditions of men. They will have a really detailed knowledge that they don't have, the instance, of the scriptures. So, they might know, for instance, that they were raised such that they're not supposed to eat meat on Fridays. Or they were raised such that this is how you have to look when you take communion, you have to kind of look sad, or whatever it was that you were taught. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. And that's, you know, it could be okay. I mean, it's it's not it's not evil that you eat fish on Fridays or that you go pick out a fish fry on Fridays or whatever it is that you're doing. But the problem is people will have a really clear sense of all of those rules, and they'll be able to keep track of, okay, these are the rules when I go to work, I have to do this, and then when I go to church, these are the new rules, or whatever the case may be, and they will not be able to tell you, you know, what's in the book of Nahum, what's going on in there, um, what's it even about, is it going to Jonah at all? They won't know these things, and the problem then is that we will, in fact, not know what the only wise God says. And this is always an ongoing reality in the church. It's always happening. At times of crisis, it just becomes apparent that it may or may not be. So I don't like to criticize lots of people who are not Lutherans. I just like to, I don't even really like to criticize anybody particularly, but I don't want to be super critical of many non-Lutherans because there are people that don't have our doctrine of the sacraments. Jesus Christ is physically present. He's going to be physically present in the sacrament of the body and blood tomorrow. They don't have that teaching at all. And we believe it's very clear in Scripture. This is my body. This is my blood. What else does it mean? But they kept their church open. So John McCarthy was willing to be sued in Southern California, a place many of us are probably scared to live. Okay. In Southern California, and keep his church open for what? Because he figured he was supposed to have church. So I was was happy for him, and I was proud of him at that moment because he was trying to adhere to Scripture such as he understood it, and I certainly agreed with him on that. He was trying to do that. That's something to be encouraged. There are lots of other things that shouldn't be encouraged about what he teaches. He's pretty strange on the end times, but that was good. And that understanding of people... Is a way of looking at their behavior under the Word of God before anything else, because that will show you are they using the scriptures or are they not? Does the state have jurisdiction over the church or not? Does the state control how I administer the sacraments or not? Because traditions of men will vary. Some states, you will remember, had no restrictions whatsoever that was very few, most had some, most had, some had even very restrictions tailored to Roman Catholics, so Roman Catholics can just give communion in one kind, so, and it was either Maine or Connecticut, maybe it was both heavily Catholic states, you can't administer the wine, but you can administer bread, because that's a okay. and the Catholics said, good for us. Traditions of men are also going to vary widely, whereas the word of God will produce unity where and when it is used. So if we have any unity in the word of God, any fellowship in Christ, then I come here and the hymns are familiar and the word of God is familiar and it makes sense, right? And that's produced by the word of God while we're in different synods. So, the word of God will also produce actual unity among men, whereas the traditions of men will never produce unity. Because, of course, depending on the authority putting the tradition forth, the traditions are going to vary widely. But so because they're taught as commandments of God, you won't be able to say, well, this is just the way my family eats Thanksgiving dinner, and then your family's different, but that's okay. Honey. We can do Thanksgiving dinner with your family because it's not a big deal, right? But the traditions of men as they get taught in scripture do not sound like that. They sound like you have to do this now. So we really can't abide one another even though we could be unified because the traditions of men vary widely. The reason I think that this sufficiency of scripture for the church's faith and life, as well as for yours individually, is the biggest cord in the threefold strand, is because without it, the other two don't really make much sense. Luther gets the justification through scripture. And the church will be reformed through scripture. If the scripture doesn't actually get used, then it doesn't matter what's on the sign outside. It doesn't matter if you're doing Reformation Sunday. It doesn't really matter because you're not actually using the method to arrive at those things that Luther, that the Reformers themselves did.
4: Without this method of
2: constant searching of scripture... None of the rest of it matters, and it will all eventually get replaced by something. So justification will sadly turn into like, you know, just this is like a shibboleth, like this is what we believe, but it has no practical bearing on life because you're not using the scriptures to see that, for instance, when Paul thinks about justification, he says, well, that's God's opinion. So how do I regard the opinions of men about what I'm doing? Well, I regard them pretty, says in Galatians, likely. So going along with the doctrine of justification is also a certain understanding of humans talk a lot and it doesn't matter very much. So there's a practical follow-on from these things that will be seen, but only through Scripture. Let's talk about the third chord, and then we'll have some kind of practical recommendations and discussion before we have questions. We have until noon, is that right? We have until noon, so we have a little bit of time. The third chord is the church's subjection scripture. And by subjection, that's a word that gets used in the Bible for an ordering underneath. It doesn't mean that the church is nothing. It doesn't mean the church is abject. It means that the church is Subject And it is subject to, it is ruled by the word of God. Because here are the options. Word of God, traditions of men, functionally. Throughout Israel's history, this is the case.
4: And you will notice that when
2: the scripture is brought up, the Pharisees do not really want to discuss much. They do use the Bible, I mean, they know things in the Bible, as do Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, they know things in the Bible, as do some Muslims, they know things that are in the Bible somewhere, but they don't really know how the thing fits together, or they don't know how to use it, and so when it is brought up, Jesus says, you search them, you pour over them, but it is they that testify of me. So if you actually understood what was happening, you would be able to see that he is the Messiah. Or if you searched them, you would understand that, okay, you profess this doctrine and justification, that's great, but you still center your discussion of church life around the opinions of men. As if that has some kind of equal weight with the teaching of God. If the church is not practically, this is probably the most Practical for the church's collective life, if the church is not practically subject to the word, then it really will always go astray in one or more ways. There's no other option because of man's inborn tendency to sin. And the way that sin gets expressed in the church's teaching is through the traditions of men being taught in place of the word of God, So in the same way that sin gets expressed in an individual life, like you you give place to anger or you nurse a grudge and then kind of, oh, I forgive you, to their face, but then you kind of hold on to it. Personally, the church expresses its corporate sin in corporately a disinterest in or a presumption about rather than a use of the word of God. So there are innumerable ways in which that could actually happen. We could, when we gather together, spend relatively little time studying the Word. We could, when we gather together, congregations, uh, districts, synods, spend little time actually discussing God's teachings. Instead, we do whatever else it is that we do when we're together, but we don't do much of that. This could be expressed in all kinds of ways the issue is always that what is actually occurring is that the church has little or no familiarity with the teachings of god's word or how they hold together or how they bear practically on various life situations in jesus time this occurs in a way that means that he is largely rejected, and this is important. Some people will say, well, Jesus, Jesus hung out with sinners, and he got rejected by, and people will say today, I think in order to sound kind of edgy, he got rejected by religious people. Have you ever heard that? Jesus was rejected by religious people, and then you're like, Well, what am I doing here? You know, I'm, I'm sitting here being religious, I'm here on a Saturday, okay, not to speak of a Sunday. So is there something wrong with that? I think it's a little inexact to say that Jesus was rejected by religious people. Jesus was rejected by authorities who had other priorities. Average people, by and large, came to him and were received by him. So sinner isn't some separate class of a guy with a certain number of sleeve tattoos, On various limbs and a certain number of piercings. And Jesus hung out with those guys, but not with you because you don't have enough tattoos or piercings or you're sitting in the pew. Sinners is anyone. And Jesus was not rejected by just anybody. He was rejected by people who thought themselves to be somebody. That's the distinction. They have a lot at stake in their life, perhaps in their income. (coughs) They are somebody, and Jesus threatens their being somebody, anybody in particular. That's the problem. That's also why, because they're in the positions that they're in, they really become incapable of repenting, at least publicly. Nicodemus has to come by night because to be seen with Jesus, to be seen talking to somebody from the Missouri synod, whatever the problem <laughs> might be, you can't do that in public, or when you could be, remember, this is the essence of hypocrisy, when you would be seen by someone else. Because you love to be seen. So when the church begins to behave in that way, that's when you know that something is really kind of gravely wrong, and that subjection to the word is out of the question. Let's finish up, at least my portion, and then we'll just open it up to questions in a few minutes. Let's finish up with a little bit of kind of practical discussion of what is happening. Uh, There is a piece from the early 1920s by August Pieper called Anniversary Reflections. And it is a piece of... um, Characteristic harshness. He has a harshness of expression that I find It's kind of rough. Not that he's wrong, but that he's rough. Um, you know, so he hammers, uh, the board in where it's supposed to go, but um, he just kind of, you know, damages the wood while he's smacking the nails in there. Um, That's how he is. Um, But I I, I commend it to you nonetheless because of his honesty. And it is rather surprising that a time roughly 100 years ago, a man would speak in that way, and I, so I'm going to begin the practical reflection where he begins, which is with uh, our own hearts, that reformation when it comes to the church always begins inside of people, that is, we begin with the cleansing that is actually necessary, which is a cleansing of the heart and not the washing of cups and pots couches the Pharisees always begin cleansing outward in we begin inward out and the rest flows from the inward spring if the heart is not actually attached to the Word of God and there are all kinds of needs for this we're doing some of them this weekend with the different prayer offices that there's prayer and the word of God throughout the day for the Christian, or that there is a use of the Bible by the Christian in his home, morning prayers and evening prayers. If these things are happening, then reformation is for us, for our families, for our congregations, for our synods, I think, inevitable. Because the word of God begins to take its own and its free course Paul has this much conviction about the power of the word of God to change people that when he's in prison, he says, I am bound, but the word of God is not bound. Christian liberty, freedom from slavery, freedom from the traditions of men, Christian liberty is just a knock-on effect of the liberty that the word of God has throughout the world. It is being preached, it is being read, it is being discussed, and it has its own gloriously free course. And if I could stop the Mississippi River from flowing, then I could stop the Word of God from flowing. But I can't do either. So it has its own course, and when it begins to take its course in a human heart, these things do begin to change. It's wonderful. Wonderful to see if you've ever seen it happen, either yourself or anybody else you know. Wonderful to see it in a congregation. It's just glorious to see. So these things occur, and by means of this free word, we ourselves become free. So it has to start really with us, it does not stop with us. Um, something that comes up frequently in the questions. That um, Pastor Fisk and I get through the podcast are about local problems, local difficulties, daily life. And I understand that, and that is all important, but it is not the only thing. Lutherans often, I will critique us in this, punch beneath our weight. Artistically, politically, philosophically, punch beneath our weight. Rarely is there even any kind of specifically Lutheran voice in politics, even in heavily Lutheran places. The Mormons are not so. The Catholics, the Jews are not so. The Episcopalians are not so. We are. We can't only do our own things, and life does not stop.
4: It begins,
2: but it does not stop at our front door. So it begins within us, it begins within our homes, it does not stop there. It's interesting that when CFW Walter was considering why we would have educational institutions in the Lutheran Church in America, he said we do not want to be, as I think sometimes we have become, we do not want to be Gibeonites. Meaning the people who are constantly bound to the Israelites as People that chop wood and get water. Maybe you remember this story. The Gibeonites lie to the Israelites about how far they had come because they didn't want to get killed (laughs) by the Israelites. So they lie, and the Israelites find a God and then bind them to the Israelites as basically servants forever. Servants are subject. The reason not to want to be subject in every realm of life that is not, strictly speaking, our dining table or around our altars, is to ensure especially the freedom to say what the word of God says around our dining tables and around our altars, from our pulpits. Okay? So the desire to maintain other kinds of freedom, other than specifically freedom from sin, death, and the devil, through our justification by faith, is because the preaching of the word of God is threatened by other threats to freedom. It is why the difficulties of recent years are of a different caliber than traditional debates. We can debate, should we have a state income tax? And if we do, what should the structure of that tax be? Christians can disagree about that. Christians cannot really for long, if they would remain Christians, disagree about whether or how the word supper is going to be administered. Or whether the minister may speak on what the word of God speaks on or not. So not all political disagreements are of equal belief. So we want freedom not only to express the various excellences and gifts that God has given us in all kinds of realms of life, whether we are engineers or musicians, musicians, or whatever we are, we also want the freedoms that will maintain the freedom that we do have to speak what the Word of God says. So as far as practical application goes, let's start with this, is that we have to remain a free church. When our forefathers came here, they identified an opportunity they had not had in the places from which they came to be a free church. There's a long essay by Friedrich Winnigan of the Missouri Synod in a volume called At Home in the House of My Fathers, you might want to look into, explaining the difference between a free church and a state church. And in John Schaller's Pastoral Theology for the Wisconsin Synod, he also speaks about a pastoral theology for the free church. Here's what he meant. We do not have to have our lives controlled by the dictates of the state or broader society that was the opportunity neither of them thought nor do i think that just because we are not officially state-owned we cannot thereby however escape being state-controlled whether through the influence of the media or other forms, our, our minds, and our hearts, and therefore also our actions, can easily be state-controlled, controlled by traditions of men, without any government official needing to come to our churches. And we have to flee anything that would mean controlled by traditions of men. That would mean a return to slavery. We just can't do that. So the things that involve state control—I I don't just say this because of some sort of unfavorable, you know, national executive administration. And if Someone else got a lot of I would say this. This is not a matter of specific policies or partisan suggestions. It's a matter of existence. Do we exist in a manner that is free, consonant with the fact that our ruler is Christ? Or do we not? And is that actually expressed in our church's life? So, practically, too, a suggestion is that if we do not devote most of elders' meetings and voters' meetings and district conventions and synod conventions to two things that I'm going to specify, we don't really have much of a chance. The two things that I'm going to specify are What is the Bible actually saying? Number one, on number two, what is actually occurring? What is actually occurring? So it would be very nice if I could go to any given uh, conference, whatever, and just say very comfortably, here's what happened 500 some years ago. Because it doesn't matter that much for whether our kids stay in church, whether Luther translated the New Testament in its entirety first, and only then later the Bible, or it doesn't matter too much for whether my grandkids are actually gonna remain the sex that they were born as, uh quote, assigned. Okay, it doesn't matter how quickly Luther went Hebrew on his own, but I can talk if you want to for hours about how Luther learned Hebrew and what the knowledge, the nature of his knowledge of Hebrew was. And it's interesting, but it doesn't really matter. It's not exactly occurring. There's not too much controversy in our churches about which German Bible we're going to be using. So that the past becomes an object of interest just for itself and never with application to day. Because if we were to discuss things that were actually occurring, what we could do is take a poll and we say to the people, or if it's a pastor's conference, we say to the pastors, what are the three things that come up most often in your church, in your people's lives? And they would talk about difficulties at work, they would talk about problems in their families or their extended families, they would talk about marriages and how the husband and the wife relate to each other, they would talk about lots of things, but they probably wouldn't talk about something that happened in Scandinavia in 1685, as interesting as that might be, and as lovely and pleasant as Scandinavians are to be with, they just wouldn't, it's not exactly what's happening right now. Because what I find is that Luther is able to talk about things that are actually occurring. So if I'm actually learning from Luther, if I'm a disciple of Luther, I'm listening to him, then I want to to do likewise and not just talk about things that happened to him. So what would this be like or what would this look like? It would look like people able to discuss their heritage in terms of how they were going to pass it on. Because if I have received something, then it's great if I know when great grandpa planted that tree that's in front of the house. But in order to preserve the tree, I have to know is there a bug that's threatening that tree that sooner or later my son's going to have to deal with when I do anything now? Or I need to know, you know, that part of the property is going to flood a lot, and I do something so that that doesn't happen so often so my grandkids can enjoy it. If I have a heritage, then I need to think not just what I have received, but how I will pass it on and extend it and continue it. And in order to do that, I have to subject the church actively and constantly to the Word of God in the present day. And how the church meets and what it does and how it talks, with a forthrightness that Luther himself certainly expressed in his day about what is actually occurring. If that happens, then the church is free. Then Christian liberty, that is, liberty from the traditions of men, is maintained. If that does not happen, then we return to slavery. And we may actually say in our slavery, the way the Pharisees say, we have never been subject to anybody, so blinded that we don't even realize that we're bound. So what we're looking for is an active, a practical, in daily life, also in church life, a subjection to the Word of God that would make us worthy of being called heirs of the
4: Reformation. Thank you.
1: So there will be, uh, this is the time to take questions and comments. If you have a question or a comment, uh, right back by Pastor Hendricks, um, about uh, two-thirds of the way back is a microphone attached to a stand. Um, Please have your comments and or questions be succinct. State your rank, name, and serial number. Um, (laughs) Well, maybe not that today, Um, but uh, introduce yourself and uh, what church you're from and then make your um comment or question. Thank you.
5: See pastors do this sometimes. They'll they'll be at like a uh symposia um at the Fort Wayne seminary and they'll get up and they'll say, you know, Bob, you know, Bingelheimer, uh Kansas District, you know, and it's like doesn't matter right now, Bob. So um Bill, go ahead.
3: Uh, Okay, so Bill Schlazer from Totem, Wisconsin, uh, St. Paul's congregation. I don't have my serial number on me, so forgive me. (laughs) Um, But I I found it just interesting that last thing you were saying about um, that if we don't focus on what the Bible is actually saying um, and pay careful attention to what is actually occurring and how those two Mm -hmm. work together. um, It kind of made me think one of my lifelong struggles as growing up Lutheran was really understanding what does even evangelism look like, mm-hmm. and like I really struggled to find that model out yeah. there. What it was, yeah. And I felt like I had to go elsewhere. And those things actually did help a lot. Um, but it kind of I wonder if there is a tie in that sense that if we're not if we're not doing because those things seem to be very much tied to evangelism because if we're not um, taking care of what's uh, looking into scriptures and to that again to what is actually occurring in our world right now, that makes it very difficult to speak with anybody in the real
5: world. Right, yeah, yeah, especially if you're not accustomed to either hearing in a sermon or being able to discuss, like in a Bible class or something, some pertinent contemporary thing, and then being able to actually say that for yourself. So in the same way that often Lutherans will struggle, even though they know the gospel, to articulate the gospel because it's kind of come to them at second hand almost i mean sad to say right they've heard it over and over again but how to articulate how that relates to life is very difficult if they haven't been pushed to to do that and so i think that this is kind of a teaching problem that we have that Um, after you memorize something, the thing that you're supposed to do with what you memorized and the reason that you only memorize really a small number of things, I mean, even if you have every word of the small catechism memorized, it's not that many words. I mean, it's it's less information than probably most people in Wisconsin know about the Packers, like off the top of their heads, right? Is that if you have that memorized then what you do with things you've memorized is then you're able to apply them more easily because you have them ready you know, but you have to have some kind of practice in applying them or explaining them to somebody else. Yeah. Yes, sir.
6: My serial number is um, printed on my forearm for the new normal. Um, What um, can you say to us today about how our Lord Christ laid out very clearly that the Pharisees and the people who embraced what they embraced, which was not God's law Mm -hmm. and certainly not the gospel, Yeah. Um, he made it very clear that they were of Satan, that they were followers of Satan. Yeah. When Satan threatens us, when Satan threatens the work of the church, which is to preach the word and administer the sacraments, um, when is it acceptable to lie to Satan? In fact, during an elders' meeting, I said to the elders and my pastor in 2020, Mm -hmm. I said, I would rather, um, essentially... It's, it's To put it succinctly, um, I would rather die with a cup of salvation on my lips than live here on earth without it. To what lengths may we go in our Christian liberty uh-huh. to protect what God has given to us? And when is it acceptable to essentially do something that people may call a sin in order to prevent them from depriving us of what God yeah. has told us to hold on to?
5: Okay, um, I, I, think, I think one thing to always keep in mind is that people are going to call sins things which are not, and they will call blessings things which are in fact curses. So men's opinions just always swirl and vary and attachment to them is, is kind of its own miserable reward. So I think that that's, that's something you always have to keep in mind. Um, when you're dealing with something that's actually instituted by God, whether you're talking about the Lord's Supper or your family or whatever, right? Um, when you're dealing with things that God has actually established, then the lengths, um, you know, it's not, it's not really a, a question if you would go to any ultimate length you can imagine because you are trying to preserve what God has set up and therefore what endures and what blesses. So in that case, then you, you just go to whatever lengths you need. I think that as, as to openness or discussion of what is actually occurring, a barrier a lot of people have is that because it's of course awkward or unpleasant or could be considered impolite to discuss such things, we don't, and so we remain often in the church confused about, okay, well, he's not going to this length, or he thinks this doesn't matter as much, and that's partly because we're just not able to bring it up. So, I mean, if everybody, if everybody knows that the Lord's Supper matters, but then suddenly, as it did in most churches, the way that it's administered changes radically, or it's not administered for a long time or something, then... Um, If that never gets discussed, then we don't really know what it is that we, as, as that church, value. But it's, of course, unpleasant to discuss whether somebody was wrong or we were all collectively mistaken or something. So I think that there's kind of an issue of we're almost like too nice for the Bible in the sense that we would rather be nice and never talk about it than bring it up, even if plainly it does matter in the Bible. Joe, go ahead.
7: Thanks. Uh, Name, Joe Jewell, rank. I'm an assistant professor for now. Serial number I'd have to look up, so I can't help you But my question, uh, and uh, great talk, by the way. My question was about uh, techniques that are used often to shut down discussion Yeah. around midway through your Mm -hmm. talk. And and you mentioned um, also the pretense about uh, being able to, you know, discuss the traditions of men, but not the Bible. This is something that, uh, in my experience at least, this accusation is often thrown against confessional Lutherans, because we are prone to cite the confessions, and yeah. asked over and over, you know, why are you citing this work of man, um, rather than uh, scripture? Yeah, And, and right. we, we know, of course, uh, Walter's famous response to, to a similar question, but. I guess I wanted to give you the opportunity Mm -hmm. and ask you the question, what is the proper response to that? And and this is so often a technique used to short circuit or shut down discussions such that um, I worry a bit that we take the confessions entirely out of play by deferring to that.
5: Yeah, okay. So you can always, I mean, where the person is not accepting and the the issue that, that Walther brings up when similar accusations are made is his claim is if we're talking amongst people who claim to be Lutheran, then we should be able to discuss the confessions because that defines what it is to be Lutheran. Now, the, so the plain reality that you'd have to deal with is that is not how many people in various Lutheran synods actually understand Lutheranism at this point in history. So I just have to use the Bible and I will have recourse to the Bible where they're not gonna listen to the confessions But it's not really valid for somebody to say, well, I'm a Lutheran, but I don't care that the confessions exhibit an attachment to um, the Western form of the church's liturgy. That doesn't matter to me. Or the confessions articulate something in this specific way, or they talk about John 10 when they talk about the doctrine of election or something, however obscure you might wanna be, is that the confessions are both describe what the Lutheran church says and then also function within the Lutheran church as an authority because they derive their authority from the word of god they themselves are saying these are not traditions of men traditions of men doesn't don't just mean that some man said them at some point traditions of men means that it has a human origin the confessions are saying the origin of what we're saying is in the bible go check so that's, that is a different thing from what the scriptures describe as traditions of men where something is required or taught that has a merely human, and if it has a merely human, it has ultimately a satanic origin. Go
0: ahead. Hello, I'm uh, Noah Schleusner, Bill's son, so uh, same church in probably, or at least close. Um, With that earlier dichotomy you were talking about between studying the word of God as a necessity um, as a people, but then also uh, taking into account the current issues and applying it to those, there's a lot of issues I think that most of us can see, such as transgenderism and surrounding ideology, stuff like this. Are there any that you as a pastor have seen that most of us might not be aware of on a broader level?
5: On a broader level, I think partly because it's normalized and maybe we can talk about it more Um, in the afternoon is um, dynamics between husbands and wives and then dynamics between parents and children that the wife doesn't, she doesn't claim to, but she does rule over the husband and the children rule over both of them. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of upside downness that has an immense number of practical effects in people's lives. Um, in how they behave, how they present themselves, how they talk, so men will sound. I think you can kind of see this sometimes. Younger guys will sound very uncertain when they talk. If you talk to a guy that 's seventy years old he 's not going to kind of make it sound like he 's asking a question whenever he talks, but a lot of young guys will sound like that. so there are a lot of very practical effects in people 's lives that happen inside their homes that then follow on and they i mean they could it could be on the level of it's creating a problem for the whole congregation, but more often it's kind of an everyday practical problem for the people in that family. So that's, I mean, and that's not something that's being covered on the news. Matt Walsh is maybe not talking about that. Specifically, he's got other things on his plate, but, but I, I mean, I see that all the time, yeah.
0: Jeff, go ahead. Thank you so much for your, your excellent uh, 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 topic here. Um, so I'm Jeff Hendricks pastor here. Uh change is hard for people and 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 even more so uh reflecting back on on what they themselves have done. Um and uh so uh, the things that have happened in the past couple of years uh uh and uh, churches that may have done something that they quickly did uh because mm-hmm. they weren't yeah, um, right. yeah. aware um and, and, and because changes are because reflecting is hard, uh, those things, those new traditions that they fall into, then become kind of codified, and then, yep. and then that becomes their new um, standard by which they they judge future practice. Yep. Um, uh, are there instances in the Reformation and, and maybe elsewhere uh, where where this this sort of reflection has has actually taken place, uh, and and the church has been able to be fruitful about it, uh, and, um, and and. and and discuss it and move forward uh, without having these these new traditions uh, of men. um.
5: Yeah, I think the difficulty there is that when you're dealing with Reformation, one difference that you're dealing with is sort of like a cultural difference um, between us and them that is somewhat similar to if you move around the different parts of the United States, you get cultural differences. So um, I'm from the East Coast. My first call was on the East Coast. If people don't tell you they have a problem with you, they truly don't have a problem with you, culturally. So if I do something, like I introduced at the congregation, I introduced chauzables during the divine service. I was told in seminary, don't do this, do it slowly, or don't do it at all, or whatever, because people will be upset. I said, these are nice. And they were like, yeah, those are nice, Pastor. That was it. But that's a cultural difference. I didn't discuss it with anybody because I knew they would tell me if they had a problem. <laughs> you know? And um, so I think that depending on what a congregation is like, one thing that would need to be able to occur over time, and I think when we're talking about change, I don't want to indicate a single ounce of harshness with people. Everyone made decisions, everyone makes stupid decisions sometimes. The only trick is, are you able to admit that? Whether a person or a congregation, and if there's no process whereby the congregation is able to actually reflect, then it's impossible to change. If it can reflect in whatever ways that it needs to reflect, whether that's the pastor talks about it, and then people are whatever, or the people need to talk, or you know, the five extended families that are that congregation need to talk, whatever, however this works, if that's, then you're going to be okay. It might take a while, but you're going to be fine. If you have no capacity for reflection, you don't have a capacity for repentance. That's the key. So I think that I would be looking at capacities for reflection rather than, you know, overnight. I mean, when I, when I first, got ordained, I think I had some stupid idea in my head. My, my friends would be embarrassed if they showed up at my church, so I gotta change stuff, right? Um, I think I was not thinking enough about how the congregation needed to think about what was happening. So if a congregation can do that, then it can change, or a synod can change. I mean, probably the one of the most drastic examples in American Lutheranism is how much the Wisconsin Synod changed between when it was founded and when it came into the synodical conference, so it can happen, um, but it has to. There has to be room, and Muehlheuser gave the younger guys room in the Wisconsin Senate to change. So, um, yeah. Thank you. Yes, sir. Other any other questions? Oh, I guess we're at twelve, so David's going to shut us down here. <laughs> Time's up. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr.
1: Coons.